I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Can you reach the range by one horse open sleigh? Well, the answer is there's only one way to find out. It's high noon for Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. And once again, a huge thank you to everyone who has decided to support the podcast financially either in the past or this week by going to anchor.fm slash I'm your moderator. Today is the 336th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president, Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies, you got exactly what you paid for. And if you're thinking, hey, this isn't exactly what I paid for. Well, yes, it is. You just didn't know what the fine print said. And there were people trying to tell you I was one of those people. But you trusted the TV and here we are. And if you have realized that that was kind of a bad decision, well, the good news is there's a way to make up for it. You simply just have to get rid of all the stupid and evil communist ideas that led you to making that decision in the first place. And once you do that, you just go around and make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. And once you've done those two things, you simply migrate back to America where all of us will gladly accept you with open arms because we want more Americans involved in the project of America, the project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Wednesday high noon welcome to all the redeemable communists out there. Hey, commies! Merry Christmas. Now, this is going to be my last episode before Christmas. I am going to take a little time off during this holiday season. I know that a lot of you are going to be with family and friends, and you're going to be keeping busy, and listening to podcasts is not going to be part of your holiday routine, the same way it's part of your normal day-to-day routine. And I'm going to use some of this time to try to make some major headway on two book projects I'm currently working on. And I'm going to do some brainstorming about how I'm going to push this podcast forward to the next iteration as we enter 2022. 2021 has obviously been a very tumultuous year, obviously, for all of us who have been awake to everything that is going on, everything from the entirely falsified COVID narrative to the theft of the 2020 election. 
And of course, these past few months have been particularly tumultuous for me in my personal life. And this holiday season is a good opportunity for all of us to reset from 2021. Not a great reset. Let's just have a very good reset (laughs) going into 2022 so that we can start fresh and be very uh, proactive and effective at pushing our country further into the American Renaissance, which I firmly believe is just ahead. And it is on us to push the country to that point, because it certainly isn't going to be a result of the fake president's handling of the country. That, of course, is exactly what we will be fighting against. So yesterday I played that clip from Tucker Carlson and discussed how we are entering a phase where the illegitimate regime in the United States is collapsing and the global communist agenda around the world is collapsing. And you can see this collapse in the degree of desperation that it, that these people are exuding at this point. Every single time they try to communicate with the public at large, they are exposing themselves. Their messaging is inconsistent and anti-scientific and counterfactual. They are proposing a bunch of quote-unquote solutions that certainly will not solve anything and will only push their citizens further into despair as they try to exert more and more control over individual people's lives and force them into compliance. And I want to share this article uh, from Unheard. This is today. The author's name is Oliver Wiseman. The Democrats are more dangerous than ever. Their impotence could descend into anarchy. The most striking thing about the collapse of Joe Biden's legislative agenda is how unsurprising it is. It was always a distinct possibility that Joe Manchin, a moderate Democrat from a conservative state, would reject the president's flagship Build Back Better bill. Congress has already approved more than $6 trillion in additional spending since the start of the pandemic. Inflation is at a 40-year high, and the spending package was unpopular in Manchin's home state of West Virginia, not least because it threatened the energy industries on which many West Virginians' livelihoods depend. But even those who disapprove of Build Back Better's fate must surely see that this is America's political system functioning as it is supposed to function. Biden's legislation can't get the support of half the Senate, and so it won't become law. This is standard Washington fare. It is politics as it always has been. However, to listen to Democrats in the days since Manchin delivered his fatal blow is to be left with a very different impression. According to their version of events, the senator's decision is tantamount to a crisis for American democracy. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that our entire democracy is on the line. To fix this, she wants to crack down on the very privileged, very entitled and very protected Senate. Chuck Schumer, notionally in charge of Senate Democrats, responded to Manchin's decision with a promise that the upper chamber will vote on a bill that would overhaul U.S. voting laws as soon as it is back from a Christmas recess. Even before Manchin doomed Biden's agenda, calls for changes to the rules governing America's system of government, some small, others profound, had grown louder as the prospects of Build Back Better faded. Last week, Elizabeth Warren introduced a bill to pack the Supreme Court with additional justices. 
The current court, she argued, threatens the democratic foundations of our nation. In democratic supporting parts of the media, the tone is no less alarmist. Jennifer Rubin, the West Wing's favorite columnist, argued in the Washington Post that the failure of Build Back Better puts, quote, democracy itself in a precarious position, end quote. She emphasized the Democrats hopes for 2022 and the fate of our democracy depend on the president's ability to reconstruct an agenda he can actually deliver. In one sense, she's right. Their legislative disappointment is a chance for Democrats to face a banal, if frustrating reality that Biden was not elected with a mandate for transformative legislation, that the party has only the loosest grip on the legislative branch, and that America simply isn't crying out for the progressive reforms that most of the party favors. But facing unpleasant facts isn't fun, hence why Democrats appear to be slipping further into their own delusions, processing Manchin's obstinance as a crisis that imperils not just their own electoral fortunes, but the future of the republic, and hence why what should be a moderating moment looks likely to have a radicalizing effect. Their own legislative impotence persuading a party already comfortable with an apocalyptic register to dial up the doom and gloom to 11. Such a response can, of course, be understood on an emotional level. You're more likely to complain about the quality of the refereeing when you're losing. But it is also worth appreciating on a political level. The Democrats' 2020 victory was built on the unpopularity of Donald Trump. Well, not really. Without that, it is far from clear they can put together a coalition of voters broad enough to hold on to both chambers of Congress and the White House. And so, with a legislative agenda foundering, it's time to return to something they can all agree on the wickedness of the other side. None of this is to say there aren't threats to American democracy from the Trumpist right. Uh, sure, buddy. The last president spent the months between the election and Biden's inauguration doing everything he could to stay in power. Not true. Any sensible reforms to the rules governing Washington would safeguard against something similar happening again. But that danger to America's electoral system only makes the Democrats focus on the largely unrelated question of voting rights and their overblown rhetoric of voter suppression and Jim Crow 2.0 more baffling and less excusable. Instead of tailoring their pro-democracy agenda to the dangers that surround post-election certification, the party is plowing ahead with a bill that would federalize voting rules in response to some mostly inane changes at a state level. Elsewhere, Democrats want to overturn the rules that govern the Senate and, if Warren is anything to go by, take the extraordinary step of rebalancing the Supreme Court simply because progressives aren't satisfied by its current composition. As the center-left commentator Matthew Iglesias has observed, Democrats certainly aren't acting as though they believe that the future of democracy is in peril. If they did, they'd surely shelve party political concerns and build as broad a coalition as possible to combat the Trumpist threat. The dark irony of the Democrats' predicament is that they could end up being right for the wrong reasons. There's a chance, after all, that the failure of Build Back Better really is bad news for American democracy, but only because it radicalizes their own side. A universe in which Biden and other Democrat lawmakers listen to Manchin's complaints about the legislation, attempt to understand the concerns of the voters he represents, without whom the Senate would be in Republican hands, and steer themselves back towards the center feels a long way away. Biden, for his part, has taken a tough line all along. According to the Washington Post, the White House rejected an offer from Manchin that included the vast majority of the bill's provisions. Now that the West Virginian has walked away, they appear to be pursuing a vindictive scorched earth strategy. 
Faced with Manchin's exasperation, Democrats cry foul, accusing him of being a corrupt coal boss and choosing to ignore the obvious fact that the legislation would have been very unpopular in his home state. Again, the clear, normal, predictable explanation is spurned in favor of a more alarmist narrative. Biden himself is certainly capable of overblown rhetoric about the future of American democracy. But so far, he has mostly resisted calls from Democrats to go nuclear and change the rules that govern Washington to favor his own party. That refusal grows harder by the day. Many in his party are rightly concerned that their country is stuck in a downward spiral, but they cannot see their own part in the process. Increasingly, both sides view anything other than victory for themselves as illegitimate. A party that responds to its own perfectly normal legislative woes by doubling down on an all-out battle to rewrite the rules of the system in its favor is not serious about ending that descent into anarchy. And so, the more impotent the Democrats feel, the more dangerous they become. So, Wiseman here is largely right about what the Democrat Party is doing at this point. They are attempting to seize more power for themselves because they have realized that the illegitimate power they have already seized is not enough to get the job done the way they need to get it done. Ostensibly, they have the presidency, the Senate, the Congress, the military, and the federal bureaucracy. They also have the entire old guard system on their side, the universities, the big tech companies, the media, Wall Street and the banks, the multinational corporations, the CCP, who Biden is obviously compromised by through his son and through his own shady dealings and the global communist order. And they still aren't able to get done what they want to get done. And the reason they can't do that is because the people are not on their side. And I come back to this a lot. They need the people on their side. If the people are not on their side, they cannot complete what it is they're trying to do. If they could do everything by force, they would already be using force. But the system that they are trying to construct only works if the society largely agrees with them and everyone who disagrees with them is left powerless. And that's what they've attempted. They want the people to be agreeing more and more and more with them. And that's what all the messaging is geared to do. I imagine that they actually have algorithms and people studying exactly how they're supposed to message everything to achieve the proper results. And the big tech companies being aligned with them should theoretically make all of that relatively easy, but it's not working. Instead, the narrative is going the opposite direction away from everything they're doing and everything they're doing is getting exposed on every level. And there was a really interesting development in that this week. We talked many months ago about a Harvard professor named Charles Lieber, who was caught working on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. This is CBS News Today. Harvard professor charged with hiding his ties to Chinese government found guilty on all counts. A Harvard professor charged with hiding his ties to a Chinese-run recruitment program was found guilty on all counts Tuesday. Charles Lieber, 62, the former chair of Harvard's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology, 
had pleaded not guilty on two counts of filing false tax returns, two counts of making false statements, and two counts of failing to file reports for a foreign bank account in China. The jury deliberated for about two hours and 45 minutes before announcing the verdict following five days of testimony in Boston Federal Court. Lieber's defense attorney, Mark Mukasey, had argued that prosecutors lacked proof of the charges. He maintained that investigators didn't keep any record of their interviews with Lieber prior to his arrest. He argued that prosecutors would be unable to prove that Lieber acted, quote, knowingly, intentionally or willfully, or that he had made any material false statement, end quote. Mukasey also stressed Lieber wasn't charged with illegally transferring any technology or proprietary information to China. Prosecutors argued that Lieber, who was arrested in January, knowingly hid his involvement in China's Thousand Talents Plan, a program designed to recruit people with knowledge of foreign technology and intellectual property to China to protect his career and reputation. Lieber denied his involvement during inquiries from U.S. authorities, including the National Institutes of Health, which had provided him with millions of dollars in research funding, prosecutors said. Lieber also concealed his income from the Chinese program, including $50,000 a month from the Wuhan University of Technology, up to $158,000 in living expenses, and more than $1.5 million in grants, according to prosecutors. In exchange, they say, Lieber agreed to publish articles, organize international conferences, and apply for patents on behalf of the Chinese university. The case is among the highest profile to come from the U.S. Department of Justice's so-called China Initiative. The effort launched in 2018 to curb economic espionage from China has faced criticism that it harms academic research and amounts to racial profiling of Chinese researchers. <laughs> you got that? So they are defending his defenders are saying that going after him for his obvious corruption and ties to the Chinese Communist Party, going after that is racist. And it's going to hurt the university's ability to advance academic research. Well, if the second part is true, I guess who cares, right? There are plenty of smart people and plenty of resources in the United States where we could advance the academic research on our own. We don't really need coordination with the CCP for everything, despite how much Joe Biden likes it. Hundreds of faculty members at Stanford, Yale, Berkeley, Princeton, Temple, and other prominent colleges have signed on to letters to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland calling on him to end the initiative. The academics say the effort compromises the nation's competitiveness in research and technology and has had a chilling effect on recruiting foreign scholars. The letters also complain the investigations have disproportionately targeted researchers of Chinese origin. Lieber has been on paid administrative leave from Harvard since being arrested in January 2020. And that's good. You wouldn't want him losing money. On Wednesday, in the wake of Lieber's conviction, China defended its international scientific exchange programs. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian said China manages such exchanges along the same lines as the U.S. and other countries. U.S. agencies and officials should not stigmatize such programs and, quote, instead do something conducive to China-U.S. scientific and people-to-people -people exchanges and cooperation, Zhao said. So it's good that CBS News included that part. You wouldn't want to be unfair to the Chinese Communist Party. 
Now, I talked yesterday about how the Democrats are planning to celebrate the year anniversary of the very violent insurrection because they want to keep that narrative going for as long as they can. That January 6th committee seems to be little more than an attempt to get their hands on a bunch of information they believe they need to keep the illegitimate government in power. The idea that they're actually trying to figure out how the very violent insurrection occurred is nonsense. If they were actually concerned about that, they would be calling the FBI and other law enforcement agencies who deployed their own assets and own informants to spark the violence on that day. None of that's happening. They're basically just trying to get all the communications and all the records from everyone associated with Trump who had even ancillary involvement in discussions about trying to overturn the obviously fraudulent election. And Trump put out a statement on that yesterday. He wrote, why isn't the unselect committee of highly partisan political hacks investigating the cause of the January 6th protest, which was the rigged presidential election of 2020? Does anybody notice that they want to stay as far away from that topic as possible? The numbers don't work for them or even come close. The only thing they can do is not talk about it. Look at what is going on now in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and to a lesser extent, Michigan, where the numbers are horrendously corrupt in Detroit, but the weak Republican rhinos in the Michigan House and Senate don't want to touch the subject. In many ways, a rhino is worse than a radical left Democrat because you don't know where they are coming from and you have no idea how bad they really are for our country. The good news is there are fewer and fewer rhinos left as we elect strong patriots who love America. I will be having a news conference on January 6th at Mar-a-Lago to discuss all of these points and more. Until then, remember, the insurrection took place on November 3rd. It was the completely unarmed protest of the rigged election that took place on January 6th. And I love that he's doing this. I love that he is going to finally go directly at the January 6th commission and what actually happened on that day. I hope that news conference goes deep on all of this stuff. The election rigging, the federal law enforcement involvement in the violence on January 6th, and the fact that we still have political prisoners rotting in prison in Washington, D.C., merely for going on to the Capitol grounds after people like Ray Epps and the other unindicted co-conspirators laid out in Darren Beatty's wonderful reporting in Revolver.News removed all the barriers and encouraged people to go onto the Capitol grounds. By the time most of those Trump supporters arrived, the barriers were all gone. They were taken down by these people. And so Trump supporters unwittingly went onto the grounds where they technically were not supposed to be that day. And for that, many of them are still being punished. This is from American Greatness Today. Julie Kelly was the FBI's Whitmer chicanery a warm up for January 6th. As questions mount about the government's animating role in the Capitol protest on January 6th, the criminal case against the men charged with conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020 continues to collapse. 
Defense attorneys in the Whitmer case are carefully compiling evidence that depicts an elaborate tale of FBI entrapment. At least a dozen FBI informants were involved in the failed plot, equaling one FBI asset per defendant. FBI agents handling the informants directed every move. They funded training and reconnaissance trips and even organized a, quote, national militia conference in Ohio in June 2020 to lure potential accomplices. Several men were arrested in October 2020 when the lead informant drove them to meet an undercover FBI agent to purchase munitions. The six month long schemes dramatic conclusion. News of the shocking plot made national headlines as early voting was underway in Michigan. Joe Biden, Whitmer, and the media blamed Donald Trump for inciting an attempted domestic terror attack. Sound familiar? As I explained in an October column, the plan to abduct Whitmer, who had a very public feud with Trump throughout 2020, originated from Operation Cold Snap, an undercover multi-state FBI spy ring intended ostensibly to surveil militia groups opposed to states lockdown policies. Henrik Impola, one of the FBI special agents managing the Whitmer kidnapping plan, confirmed the existence of Operation Cold Snap in sworn testimony earlier this year. From the FBI through the Domestic Terrorism Operations Center, I was aware of other FBI investigations in Baltimore and Milwaukee and Cincinnati and Indiana involving other militia members, Impola told a judge in March. Impola's role in the Whitmer caper, in fact, stemmed from his work as a case agent for Operation Cold Snap. The 11-year Bureau veteran has spent his entire FBI career investigating counterterrorism, including militia extremism, which enabled Impola to designate the Wolverine Watchmen a Facebook group with no real organization coincidentally formed just months before the sting, a terror enterprise to justify the government's central involvement in rigging the kidnapping scheme. Impola, working out of a satellite office in Flint that reports to Michigan's only FBI field office in Detroit, was deeply involved in every facet of the Whitmer plot. His testimony is crucial to persuading a jury that the men on trial conspired to abduct Whitmer from her vacation home last year. But Impola will not testify during the trial scheduled to begin on March 8th. The judge overseeing the case delayed the original November trial date after defense attorneys requested more time to investigate the government's informants and agents. BuzzFeed News reported over the weekend that Impola won't be on the government's witness list after defense attorneys accused Impola of perjury in another case. In fact, the Justice Department notified the court on Friday that all three of the top FBI agents in charge of the Whitmer investigation, including Impola, will not testify on behalf of the government amid accusations of misconduct, domestic abuse charges, and political bias. Jason Chambers, who worked side-by-side -side with Impola throughout the sting, was caught running a consulting business and anonymously publicizing his side gig on social media. Over the summer, defense attorneys, citing a separate BuzzFeed report, accused Chambers of using a troll account to hint that something big was coming out of Michigan. The troll account purportedly belonged to the CEO of X-Intel, a cyber intelligence firm owned by none other than Jason Chambers. The evidence documented in the BuzzFeed story suggests that Special Agent Chambers used the investigation to promote his company and its services, defense attorneys wrote in an August filing. Chambers moonlighting not only shows a personal motive in coordinating the kidnapping ruse, it also calls into question the integrity of the FBI's top informant, who kept in nearly hourly contact with Chambers and Impola for more than six months. Defense counsel will want to know whether the informant knew of Chambers' side business.
And Michigan wasn't Chambers and his informants only target. The pair conspired to entrap another man, a disabled Vietnam veteran from Virginia, into devising a plan to assassinate Virginia Governor Ralph Northam before the 2020 election. The mission is to kill the governor specifically, Chambers instructed his informant. That plot failed to materialize. But it would be hard to find a bigger lowlife in the Whitmer case than the lead agent, who not only has been removed from the witness list, but fired from the FBI, a near impossible feat. Richard Trask, the agent who signed the criminal complaint against the six federal defendants, was arrested last summer for drunkenly assaulting his wife after the couple attended a swingers party at a local hotel. Police body cam footage released this week show the inside of Trask's Kalamazoo home, including a bed sheet stained with blood. Trask's wife told officers her husband hit her head against a nightstand multiple times in the early hours of July 18th, causing a laceration and strangulation marks on her neck. Trask choked her out, she said. Inebriated, wearing no shirt and with blood on the side of his face, Trask was arrested around 4.15 a.m. on one count of assault. He was not asked to take a breathalyzer test or charged with driving under the influence, despite clear indication. On Monday, Trask pleaded no contest. A Kalamazoo judge sentenced Trask to time served. He spent two nights in jail after his arrest and to pay court costs. Very, very tough sentence, I guess. An investigation by a Grand Rapids television station also unearthed Trask's anti-Trump rants on social media. One post dated March 28, 2020, called Trump a piece of shit president and said he hoped Trump would burn in hell for his response to the pandemic. Trask posted the message just as the FBI concocted kidnapping scheme took off. The government does not plan to call Impola, Chambers, or Trask as witnesses. Assistant U.S. Attorney Andrew Burge notified the court on December 17th. The government requests the court exclude evidence related to ex-Intel, the unfounded allegations against S.A. Impola, and Richard Trask's domestic assault charges or alleged social media posts. By removing the three dirty cops from the witness list, the Justice Department hopes to prevent any cross-examination during the trial. Defense attorneys, however, are not deterred, and the government has another major headache on its hands. A detailed chart attached to a new defense filing lists nearly 260 texts, group chat messages, and audio recordings proving the extensive planning and coordination between FBI agents and their confidential sources. The communications, according to defense counsel, also show the would-be kidnappers pushed back on the FBI's plan on several occasions. The agents here drove the informants communications with the defendants and the agents shaped the informants assertions statements and claims the agents monitored the chs conversations and other communications with the defendants and not only approved them but used the information they gathered from them to direct further activity after monitoring the communications fbi agents paid the lead informant with an envelope filled with cash when the same informant reported to the fbi that he was making no progress the fbi continued to push its plan Prosecutors have downplayed the communications as hearsay and insist they're not admissible in court, but the defense undoubtedly has much more in its arsenal. If the prosecution completely falls apart either before March or during trial, the outcome would deliver a huge blow to the already collapsing narrative about January 6th. The two events are inextricably tied with numerous intersections, not the least of which is that the head of the FBI's Detroit field office, Steve D'Antuono, was promoted 
to run the FBI field office in Washington, D.C. one week after the arrests in the Whitmer plot were announced. You got that? They moved him after he was overseeing the FBI's attempt to stage a kidnapping plot against Gretchen Whitmer. They promoted him to do the same thing in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, three months later. That's the same FBI office running the Bureau's capital investigation. If the Whitmer trial proceeds, even without the Capers' top FBI masterminds, it would provide an illuminating backdrop to the first trials of January 6th defendants in 2022. Was Operation Cold Snap the launching pad for both the Whitmer plot and the Capitol protest? The American people cannot and should not ignore the similarities. And she's right. Americans should absolutely be concerned that elements of the federal government and federal law enforcement are setting up these events and intentionally trying to get Americans to commit crimes so that they can create political advantages. And this stuff, of course, has been happening forever, but it is now becoming exposed. People are seeing how these operations come together. And they're understanding the fact that these elements of their government are more than willing to sacrifice innocent Americans in what can only be described as a proxy attack against their political enemies. These plots were both designed to make Trump and Trump supporters look like domestic terrorists. And they do this knowing that elements of the FBI and of the CIA are embedded in the news organizations that go out and repeat this narrative ad nauseum to the American public, convincing American citizens that their neighbors are domestic terrorists. And against this backdrop, the idea, as described before in the article from Unheard, the Wiseman article, the idea that this division in our country is something that is organic, that's coming from the people up, seems absolutely crazy. The people want good government. They want the ability to live and act as free citizens. But the people trying to seize illegitimate political power know it's easier for them to do when they can create enemies within our own country and convince the citizens that all the other citizens are the actual problem. Now, staying on the subject of the FBI, this is from Newsmax today. FBI had surveillance squads inside Portland protests. The FBI deployed extensive surveillance operations within Portland's protest movement, according to documents obtained by the New York Times, the paper reported on Tuesday. The surveillance included agents standing alongside activists, following vandalism suspects to guide the local police toward arrests and clandestinely videotaping inside one of the nation's most active domestic protest movements. Some in the Justice Department and the Bureau were worried that the depth of FBI involvement in Portland and other cities where federal agents were deployed at street protests could undermine the First Amendment right to demonstrate against the government, according to two officials familiar with the situation, the Times reported. Although the FBI has broad latitude to carry out surveillance if there are perceived threats to national security or if federal crimes may be committed, Bureau guidelines warn that agents should use less intrusive techniques if their actions could disrupt 
legitimate demonstrations. Upon hearing the details of the revelations by the Times, organizers of the protests and civil rights groups contend that surveillance agents recording and tailing protesters during a demonstration was a form of domestic spying. These are all insidious tactics that chill First Amendment expression and erode trust with local officials, said Bobin Singh, executive director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center, one of several civil rights groups that criticized the mass arrests and violent crackdowns in response to the demonstrations. He called the government's operations an alarming misuse of resources. And of course, this is what we would expect of these social justice organizations. But let's recall what the Portland protests were actually like. They had well over, I think it might even have been up to 120, but well over a hundred nights in a row of protesters going out and trying to attack the federal courthouse. And of course, they justified it all because George Floyd had died from a fentanyl overdose, also known as being murdered by the police. I guess, but they were freezing water bottles to throw at the federal law enforcement agents who were guarding the courthouse. They were throwing canned goods at these people and they were using lasers to attempt to burn out the retinas of the federal law enforcement officials and all of the very moral, very good communists around the country They all justified this behavior. They said, well, you can't really blame them. They're just trying to fight against racism. And when you're at the point of being willing to rationalize and justify people taking lasers to try to blind other people, you can really rationalize and justify anything at that point. Like stealing an election, for example. Kieran Ramsey The FBI special agent in charge of the Portland field office said his team was committed to going after, quote, violent instigators who exploit legitimate peaceful protests and engage in violations of federal law, end quote. Ren Cannon, who was the Portland office's special agent in charge during the demonstrations until he left earlier this year, said there were constant protest related crimes and tense political dynamics, leaving the Bureau to try to address the crimes while also upholding First Amendment rights. I thought a lot about what is allowed under the Constitution, Cannon said. How do you do surveillance effectively, safely, and legally? That was something we spent a lot of time on, although he refused to talk about specific operations or tactics. However, he insisted that he believed his agents had crossed no lines while attempting to make sure that laws were enforced. Now, stories like this are really interesting. People have theorized, most notably Patel Patriot in his devolution work, that Donald Trump had designated Antifa as a domestic terrorist organization. So one would expect the federal law enforcement to be monitoring the things a domestic terrorist organization would do, particularly one that receives outside funding from foreigners like George Soros and That is exactly the situation we see with Antifa. But these stories are also interesting because it gives the left the incentive to argue to themselves that this sort of federal law enforcement involvement in what they call peaceful protests is actually wrong. This situation will reverse itself for them in terms of January 6th, but they will have already made the argument to themselves, which will 
you know, tie them up in knots as it always does when they have to apply the same principles to a situation that doesn't benefit them in the way they are used to. Now, switching subjects without a segue, we talked yesterday about the utter pointlessness and ridiculousness of Joe Biden's speech to the nation. That speech had been planned like five days before. He was going to come out and give this big address about what the fake administration was doing to counter the Omicron variant. And he was going to issue a very stark warning to the unvaccinated. That didn't happen. They basically said that they were going to get 500 million at-home tests and distribute them somehow eventually. And he repeated a bunch of complete lies, honestly, about the statistics about who was going to the hospital and who was in danger from the Omicron variant. The truth is, it's not really anyone. And now we have even further backup on that fact. This is from CBS News Today. South Africa study suggests lower risk of hospitalization with Omicron. But will other countries see the same? (laughs) The mainstream media is hilarious, man. Like, yeah, the disease works this way in South Africa, but will it work this way in Michigan? People infected with the Omicron variant of the coronavirus may face less risk of severe illness and hospitalization than those who catch Delta. A new study out of South Africa, which has not yet been peer reviewed, said Wednesday. But scientists warned that the findings could be a result of high levels of population immunity in South Africa due to previous coronavirus infections and not an indication that Omicron is less severe. And they're attempting to make this point while they also try to tell us that 200 million Americans have been fully vaccinated, some even with boosters, and that we also have millions and millions and millions and millions of COVID cases that people have caught over the last, you know, what is it, 21 months at this point. So South Africa might have very substantive herd immunity, but America, no, we are still completely at risk. The study found that people in South Africa who were diagnosed with Omicron between October 1st and November 30th were 80% less likely to be hospitalized than those diagnosed with another variant during that period. Once in the hospital during that period, however, the patients, no matter which variant they were diagnosed with, were just as likely to develop severe disease. And who knows, maybe they're using remdesivir there too, which would make their disease quite severe. And the top line in this paragraph is that people are 80% less likely to be hospitalized with Omicron. But there's something else very interesting about this paragraph, and it's the fact that they are talking about cases of Omicron from October 1st through November 30th. We were told about Omicron on November 26th, but according to this, Omicron had already been around for eight weeks by that point. Eight weeks, the highly transmissible, very scary variant had been traveling around Southern Africa, infecting people nonstop for two months before the rest of the world was ever told about it. So where are all the deaths, right? 
Shouldn't there be all these deaths? Oh, no, it's because they had some level of herd immunity, which apparently the rest of the world just doesn't have, except the rest of the world does have it. And it's been a month since they told us about Omicron. And now Omicron is becoming the dominant variant in the UK, in the US. And there are no deaths, none. And yes, they've said some deaths here and there were with Omicron, but there haven't been deaths from Omicron. And so you can see that what this article really sets out to do is to take the fact that they know you will be exposed to no matter what, which is the ultimate result here, and then reframe it in a way that says you should still be scared about it anyway. Back to the article. But compared to patients who were hospitalized with Delta between April and November, those hospitalized with Omicron in October and November were 70% less likely to develop severe disease. It is difficult to disentangle the relative contribution of high levels of previous population immunity versus intrinsic lower virulence to observed lower disease severity, the study said. The data, quote, suggests that this reduced severity may be in part a result of high levels of population immunity due to natural infection and or vaccination. South Africa, which has low vaccination rates compared to the United States, was hit hard by previous waves of the coronavirus, with an estimated 60 to 70 percent of the population contracting COVID-19. Those who recovered would most likely have developed a level of natural immunity, their bodies producing COVID-fighting antibodies and T-cells. One of the study's authors, Professor Cheryl Cohen of the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, said the study's findings could probably be generalized to other countries in sub-Saharan Africa that had seen similarly high levels of previous infection. What is unclear is whether the picture will be similar in countries where there are high levels of vaccination, but very low levels of previous infection, she said at a press conference. What countries are those? In America, we are told by the CDC numbers that there have been over 51 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus since this whole thing began. Now, not every case of the coronavirus is tested and reported and recorded, right? So whatever this number is, the ultimate number of cases, it's far higher than 51 million. In fact, We've been told the entire time that most cases of the coronavirus are asymptomatic. Asymptomatic people often do not go and get tested. For the entire time, the CDC, people like epidemiologist John Ioannidis and others have estimated the number of actual COVID cases as a factor of the number of reported cases. And the CDC has had that estimate anywhere between 6X and 24X. Ioannidis had it at 40X. So even at 6X, 6 times 51 million is virtually every single person in the United States. And that's the low end of their estimates. If we were to imagine, and of course we can't, but if we were to imagine that somehow vaccination actually helps people uh, from getting the disease, it prevents them from getting the disease, then we would be up to like 500 million if you were to add them, which I understand is not how it works. Okay. But the point I'm making is almost everybody in the United States should be covered in the same way they're talking about South Africa being covered.
So the idea that this principle doesn't apply anywhere else seems on its face to be lunacy. According to South Africa's official stats, they have had 3,353,106 coronavirus cases. They have a population of just less than 60 million people. So if they're saying that 60 to 70 percent of the country has been infected at some point and has developed natural immunity from those infections, then they, too, seem to be working with a pretty high underreporting factor here. That would be 12 times the reported number. In many high-income countries, most of the immunity that currently is prevalent is because of vaccine-induced immunity, unlike in South Africa, where most of it is probably through natural infection. Professor Shabir Mahdi, a vaccinologist at Wits University in Johannesburg, told CBS News' Deborah Pata in a previous interview. So whether the same thing transpires in the U.S. and in the U.K., where you get this uncoupling of infections and severe disease, I think that remains to be tested, he said. There are also other differences between South Africa's population and that of the United States. People in South Africa are younger, with a median age of 27.6 years compared with a median age of 38.1 in the United States. Hospitalizations as a result of Omicron might occur at different levels in countries with older versus younger populations, BBC News reported, and they must have had their fingers like double crossed, like just hoping that more people would be hospitalized in other countries. Results from a study last week out of the United Kingdom, which has a much higher vaccination rate than South Africa, as well as a much older population, and is also going through a major wave of Omicron infections, showed there was no sign that the new variant was less severe than Delta. That study also has not been peer-reviewed, and hospitalization data from Britain is very limited. And CBS must have found the only study that would say anything so ridiculous. Professor Paul Hunter, who teaches medicine at Britain's University of East Anglia, said that while the South African study was important, it was still hard to know whether the lower hospitalization rates in the country were due to Omicron being less severe than Delta. To a certain extent, this does not matter to the patient who only cares that they won't get very sick, Hunter told the Reuters news agency. But it is important to know to enable improved understanding of the likely pressures on health services. And again, Every day that passes, more and more people are infected with Omicron, which is, take it from me, a cold. And there has been absolutely no strain on hospitals anywhere. People are not getting hospitalized from Omicron. It's just not happening. This reminds me of last year where it was always, well, wait two weeks, wait two weeks. Oh, people took their masks off in Georgia in early May. Wait two weeks. The... Atlantic writes their article, Amanda Mull. I will never forget this. Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice because they chose to reopen their economy earlier than the rest of the country. Oh, no. In two weeks, everybody there is going to be dead. Except it never happens. It never, ever happens. All of the threats they make, all of these scary stories that they put out there about how we still have to be very worried. No matter what, you still got to be very, very worried. Just never happens. And at what point do you just stop listening to these people? Every indication from everywhere in the entire world is that Omicron is far less dangerous than every variant that has come before it. 
No one is making any other argument based on data because there is no other data that makes the other argument. And yesterday in Joe Biden's ridiculous speech, he didn't cite data on anything. He made up some lies about how unvaccinated people are going to the hospital more often. Not true. And then he went right back to trying to sell vaccines to everyone. And finally, speaking of vaccines, there's an interesting story today from Defense One. U.S. Army creates single vaccine against all COVID and SARS variants, researchers say. Within weeks, scientists at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research expect to announce that they have developed a vaccine that is effective against COVID-19 and all its variants, even Omicron as well as previous SARS origin viruses that have killed millions of people worldwide. The achievement is the result of almost two years of work on the virus. The Army lab received its first DNA sequencing of the COVID-19 virus in early 2020. Very early on, Walter Reed's infectious diseases branch decided to focus on making a vaccine that would work against not just the existing strain, but all of its potential variants as well. Walter Reed's spike Ferritin nanoparticle COVID-19 vaccine, or SPFN, completed animal trials earlier this year with positive results. Phase one of human trials, which tested the vaccine against Omicron and the other variants, wrapped up this month, again with positive results that are undergoing final review. Dr. Kayvon uh, Mojarad, director of Walter Reed's infectious diseases branch, said in an exclusive interview with Defense One, the new vaccine will still need to go undergo phase two and phase three trials. Unlike existing vaccines, Walter Reed's SPFN uses a soccer ball shaped protein with 24 faces for its vaccine, which allows scientists to attach the spikes of multiple coronavirus strains on different faces of the protein. It's very exciting to get to this point for our entire team. And I think for the entire army as well, Mojarad said. The vaccine's human trials took longer than expected, he said, because the lab needed to test the vaccine on subjects who had neither been vaccinated nor previously infected with COVID. And I guess they had a hard time finding those people, which makes you think that there aren't that many people who haven't had COVID. Increasing vaccination rates and the rapid spread of the Delta and Omicron variants made that difficult. With Omicron, there's no way really to escape this virus. You're not going to be able to avoid it. So I think pretty soon either the whole world will be vaccinated or have been infected, Mojarad said. The next step is seeing how the new pan-coronavirus vaccine interacts with people who were previously vaccinated or previously sick. Walter Reed is working with a yet-to-be-named industry partner for that wider rollout. We need to evaluate it in the real-world setting and try to understand how does the vaccine perform in much larger numbers of individuals who have already been vaccinated with something else initially or already been sick, Mojarad said. He said nearly all of Walter Reed's 2,500 staff have had some role in the vaccine's nearly two-year development. We decided to take a look at the long game rather than just focusing on the original emergence of SARS and instead understand that viruses mutate. There will be variants that emerge, future viruses that may emerge in terms of new species. Our platform and approach will equip people to be prepared for that. Now, I know for myself and many people out there, we don't want to hear about more vaccines for a disease that has a minute chance of killing us, particularly with what we know about the corruption with big pharma 
If you doubt that in any way, I encourage everybody once again to read or listen to Robert F. Kennedy's great book, The Real Anthony Fauci. And with what we know about the dangers of this particular set of vaccines as they've been rolled out and all of the death and the vaccine injuries that they have caused, no one is really looking to go out and figure out a new shot that we can now get. But a lot of people have pointed out, and I'm open to believing this, that this vaccine in particular might get us out of the lifetime subscription model from Moderna and Pfizer. If this can actually protect against all variants of coronavirus and SARS, then the purpose of getting the constant boosters and new vaccines kind of just goes away. Because if you remember, when they first announced Omicron, you immediately had all of the vaccine companies racing to say that they've already got something developed and they're going to get that vaccine out there immediately. In the meantime, you take boosters, but don't worry. We're going to have an entirely new vaccine all set to deal with Omicron right as some other variant emerges. And you are just on that wheel forever. This seems to many people like it might be the sort of thing that can break that cycle. And if that's the case, great. I mean, I guess I'm glad it's out there. I'm not interested in taking it. But anything that ends the lifetime subscription model to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that's got to be a good thing. So I'm going to leave that there for this week. Wherever you are celebrating Christmas and whoever you are celebrating with, I hope you have a very... Merry Christmas, filled with warmth and love and family and friendship. And uh, I will very likely talk to you once or twice next week and then be back in full on January 4th-ish. So until then, be strong, be well, do not comply. And I will be back hmm, here and there. But fully on January 4th, same reasonable time, same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator.
You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!